So this afternoon, Gil told that wonderful story about the monk finding his teachers. And at that point in the story where the gate opened and there was the monk's or the student's wife and two children who were to be his teachers. I could almost feel the tremor run around the room. <laughs> As each of you opened your own door and thought about whoever stands on the other side of your particular gate, your wife, your kids, your boss, your roommate, your mother, you know, whoever. Because we all know that we're at that point in the retreat where we're beginning to finish with the set of teachings and teachers that you've had for several days now, and you graduate to the advanced practice. <laughs> Which is really true, you know, we don't call this practice for nothing. You know, you're here and you practice, and then you leave and go back to whatever it is that is your everyday life. And that's a very serious practice of its own. So there is in the suttas a, a lovely story about a monk in the time of the Buddha who comes to the Buddha and he asks where a noble disciple, where someone who's really taking the teachings seriously can dwell once he, has, he or she has understood the teachings. And so as you see your teachers standing there on the other side of the gate, that question might cross your mind. What am I going to do? How will I take this practice back into this situation? Where can I rest my mind and my heart as I encounter these people or these situations? How do I live? What do I do? Given the teachings that you've begun to take in, the things that you're coming to know, some of you perhaps for the first time, and some of you over and over again who have you know, who've been practicing for a while. Sometimes when people come to this practice, and they come to a retreat like this, maybe some of you have already asked this question, and there comes a point when a person will say, is this going to change my life? And it's always a little hard as the person who answers the question to take a deep breath and say, well, yes, because it does. You know, that one, as we practice more and more, it does begin to change our lives. So you may have some sense of that, that whatever it is that's happened here or has been happening perhaps over a longer period of time for you, 
as you go back into your life again. It will change your life. I know it changes mine every time I go back home from retreat. I think my family probably shudders to think what I would be like if I didn't have retreat practice. (laughs) So the Buddha in the story gives this person a teaching on several places where the mind can dwell. Sometimes it's called where the mind will be protected or where the mind, um, I think of it as places where the mind and the heart can rest. Um, as we move into our everyday life. He says, um, he describes these as places where one can live evenly amidst an uneven generation and dwell unafflicted amidst an afflicted generation. So this sounds pretty much like things today, doesn't it? That Um, It's a pretty uneven ride out there a lot of the time. It's bumpy. And um, the culture often seems pretty sick or afflicted. And we yearn for a place. It's probably why you're here, actually. We yearn for places where we can have some ease and where we can rest the heart and the mind. It's perhaps, we've been reflecting a lot actually here at Spirit Rock about what is going to be the function of this place during this particularly particularly difficult time as we have a war that has been going on for quite a while, which we certainly hope will come to an end. And as we begin this time, a very difficult economic um, disaster and difficulty. So the Buddha lists six things. And for some of you, they're going to sound really familiar, like you know this list, even if you don't know that you know this list, you know this list. And for some of you, they'll be new. So he lists on these six places the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And then the second three are your own virtue, your own generosity, and the devas, or heavenly beings. And actually, it was the last one that kind of caught my attention when I first heard this list. So it doesn't matter what you're going home to. You know, some of you are going home to a situation that's stable and happy and um, familiar, and you're probably looking forward to being home. And some of you are going home to some kind of transition, perhaps a new job or no job or a difficult relationship or a difficult child. But it doesn't matter. We all need these places where we can rest the mind, a place where we can be steady and even and a place perhaps where you can taste again a bit some of the ease that maybe you've had a sense of when you've been here. I know the first afternoon, the first full afternoon, I think that's when it was. It feels like a long time ago. It might have only been yesterday. Um, But I think it was Thursday afternoon. And I came up here after lunch. And there were a couple of people lying on benches and staring off into the valley and looking up at the sky. And I thought, 
oh yes, the retreat has begun, that place that I love to watch as someone who's not a student on a retreat, as people just begin to soften and open and there is more ease and more space. So, some of you, of course, may have had what I sometimes think of as the retreat from hell. And, you know, that where it's been very difficult and there's been a lot of suffering or maybe your body has been uneasy or maybe Spirit Rock hasn't been quite the place that you thought it would be and you're ready to go. But that's all right. You know, even if that's true, you still need places to rest your mind and heart when you get home. Others of you, as I said, may have found the beginnings of them here at the retreat. So the first three, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, are pretty familiar to us. And um, they're known, as we talked about on the first night, they're known as the three refuges. And sometimes they're called the three jewels. And um, so that first night we chanted, Buddhang Saranang Gachami, I take refuge in the Buddha, and in Dhammam Saranang Gachami, I take refuge in the Dharma, and Sangang Saranang Gachami, I take refuge in the Sangha, this wonderful chant that almost no matter where you go in the Buddhist world, you can hear it chanted by communities of people. And so um, that's also what this teaching is about, is refuges for the mind. So, refuge in the Buddha, the resting place of the Buddha, the protection, if you will, of the Buddha. So, the Buddha, a Buddha, is one who is completely awake. There are Buddhas, there's the historical Buddha, but there is in the understanding that there have been many Buddhas, including some that were what are known as hidden Buddhas, Buddhas that never made themselves known, didn't do any teaching. They're just kind of out there. I like to think of that once in a while. Maybe there's a few scattered around in caves or in the jungle, men and women practicing, being fully awake and and perhaps in some mysterious way holding the planet together. So, we rest, we can rest in the awakeness of the historical Buddha and of all awake beings. And that these are beings, uh, the, um, some of the monastic chants talk about them as being fully enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, sublime, knower of the world, leader and teacher. So the historical Buddha lived 2,500 years ago and had this very interesting experience that he had of seeing the nature of things, seeing into the nature of things so deeply that the reverberation has impacted all of the generations since then. Remember we talked about that the first night of the retreat. Here we are. 2,500 years later, having this conversation because of this event that happened, which is pretty amazing. And when he was asked not too long after that experience, you know, who are you? Somebody encountered him and could see that something was interesting about this person. Who are you? 
And his answer was, I am awake. Isn't that interesting? I am awake. Not, you know, his name, not any kind of description, but I am awake, really identifying with awakeness. That's all, or saying that's all that matters, really, about his being, that he's awake. And so when one is awake, when we are awake, when we're really awake, we're living out of what is true in the present moment. And we're not living out of our stories about what is so. We're really seeing the truth of what is. And, you know, is there anyone here who didn't see how many stories the mind has? You know, you probably had endless bad soap operas for days at this point. You know, what happened before, what could happen next, some of the yummy ones about where you might go on vacation, some of the terrible ones about work or relationships or whatever. And the mind just goes on and on. Sometimes I think if it at least would write good novels, I would be happy. But it doesn't even write good novels. It writes really bad ones. And it's very repetitive. So that's not the awake mind, and that's not the Buddha mind, where we're lost in the stories. The, the Buddha mind, the awake mind, is a mind that knows the truth. There's a, a really wonderful short poem from Galway Canal, and he says, Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. (coughs) So here, we bring our attention to our experience. You've been asked to do that for several days now. Give your attention to your breath. Give your attention to hearing. Hearing. Give your attention to what's going on in your heart, what's going on in the mind. Really notice it. Really begin to go into it so that pain, for example, is no longer this monolithic event that we call pain. It begins to be, Gil had a wonderful list the other day, jabbings and needles and burnings and throbbings and shiftings and ringings and shakings and And all of a sudden, this thing that was monolithic is maybe still not very pleasant, but it's kind of interesting, and you begin to see it's not so solid, or sound becomes reverberation on the eardrum, and sometimes a sound that was unpleasant becomes kind of interesting. And sometimes we find that sound that we thought was really pleasant, actually, when we give it our attention and begin to take it apart, isn't so pleasant. And, And we begin to experience it in a whole new way, or you go into some sense of what's going on in the mind, in the heart. And I remember so clearly on one retreat having an experience, I was sitting there noting fear, 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 and and everything in me was contracting. And then I really began to pay attention, and I realized I wasn't afraid, I was kind of excited. Kind of like, you know, that point on the roller coaster when you're about to go, and that kind of excitement. 
And when I began to realize that, it was like, oh, well, that's, that's interesting. That was a little different, which allowed me to open to my experience in a whole new way, you know. So we're trained in this practice to, as Joanna Macy likes to describe it, sustain the gaze, where you sustain your attention and you really try to find out not what you want to see, not what you're afraid to see, but what is there. Whatever what is is, is what I want. Only that, but that. You know, that's really the gaze of the awake mind or the mind that wants to be awake. I often tell the story of a friend of mine who was in Vietnam as a soldier. And um, one day he went out um, on a mission and he was what's known as the door gun of the helicopter, which meant he was sitting right in the door with a gun. And they went out and whatever it was they were going out after or in search of or whatever wasn't there. And so this was good. They were happy that they hadn't had to have any kind of a fight and they were coming back feeling a little happy and jolly and um, and so the guy who was flying the helicopter, as they flew back in, they flew in over one of the local monasteries and there were a group of monks who were circumambulating the pagoda in the monastery, just quietly doing their practice, just as you might do it here, except in this case they were walking in a circle, just quietly around, with very attentively. And so this kid, because he was a kid, decided to see what would happen if he flew the helicopter down as close to them as he could. And any of you who've ever been around a helicopter, you know that's a really noisy, nasty, windy event, not fun. And so he lowered the helicopter and there was all this noise and all this wind and their robes were whipping around and things were flying around and they just kept on walking. They didn't pay any attention. They didn't look up. They just stayed completely present with their experience. And he was so taken, my friend was so taken with the presence and the attention of these monks that something moved in him. And he said, you know, I want whatever it is that they have. I want to learn how to do that. And then when he got out of the army then, in fact, did find his way into the Buddhist world and where he has been for many years now a really serious practitioner. So being able to sustain the gaze, to look for what is true, even under very, very difficult circumstances. So as you go back into your lives, It's one thing to do it here on the cushion, right? So you go back into your lives and we take those same questions. You know, what is true for me in this moment? What what is really happening here? What am I really feeling? What is this interaction that's happening between me and my best beloved? If it's difficult, 
where is the place of freedom? Where can I find a place to stand that will, if not end suffering, at least alleviate it in this very moment? There is no moment anywhere in your experience that does not have the possibility of freedom. Isn't that good news? There's no moment. There's always some place where you can take a stance that will alleviate or end suffering. If you're fully enlightened, you can end it every time. So we can't guarantee that, right? Because we're not fully enlightened. But you know that at least there can be less. So when we rest our minds on awakening, the Buddha says, the mind begins to be straight. It goes directly to its object. It doesn't get so caught in desire or aversion, you know? And so we are with something just as it is. We were, somebody was reminding me the other day of our friend uh, John Sumedho. I guess it was Howie in his talk the other night, talked about um, how Ajahn Sumedho likes to say, you know, this is the way itching is. This is the way the breath is. This is the way the sound of the turkeys is. This is the way my anger is. Really being able to go directly to the experience, to name it and to say it. And we can do this in our everyday lives. You know, say, this is the way it is. This is the way this difficult situation is. This is the way the news is today. This is the way my boss is. This is the way my marriage is. This is the way the weather is. This is the way tonight, or was the way, the fabulous chocolate cake is. You know, and to really actually allow yourself to take that in just as a simple and direct experience. How often do we remember to take both the pleasant and the unpleasant? And so you can do that as you go in the world as with difficult events, really recognizing this is difficult right now, whatever the difficulty is, or this is delightful right now, this is delicious. So often when things are delicious, we immediately shift into how to get more, don't we? You know? You're having great chocolate cake, you're thinking about the recipe and how to make it when you get home. And if you're having good sex, you're thinking about more good sex. And if it's a beautiful day, you're hoping that tomorrow will be a beautiful day, instead of just staying right here with what is. And, and of course, when we do that, when we get busy with more, what happens? We miss out on what's happening right here in this very moment. So when we do this, when we really bring our attention fully to the moment, this is what brings some calm and some stability into our experience. And this is the place, as the Buddha says, where we can dwell evenly in an uneven generation. So then the second on this list is the Dharma, that place where where we rest with, with the truth of something. The truth, sometimes it's ultimate truth, the truth which cannot be spoken. Sometimes it's just what is in this moment. So the, the Dharma, you know, 
sometimes the Dharma, the word Dharma is also um, covers the teachings of the Buddha and the core of those teachings, if you remember, um, how he spoke to on the first night on the teachings of the Four Noble Truths. And again, it's one of those places where wherever you go in the Buddhist world, this is one of the teachings that you will hear over and over and over again. Some years ago, I was at a meeting when the Dalai Lama was there, and somebody said, well, well, Your Holiness, what, what, is it, you know, what, what is it that you think of that makes a group Buddhist? You know, we were trying to find the place where the different lineages could stand together. And he thought for a moment, and he said, any group that teaches the Four Noble Truths. So that's pretty interesting, you know, all of, all of those groups, and there's a lot of them, that's, they're connected to us. And so this is really the heart. And we were also talking in the teacher's room the other day about um, reading through the collection, the middle-length dis- discourses, it's called, and seeing how often the Buddha comes back to this teaching. It's like, you know, if you look at, at all of us, and then if you add Sylvia and Jack Cornfield, and you probably could sort of say, well, you know, Jack's likely to talk about this, and Sylvia's going to talk about that, and Gil will talk about something else, and Howie, you know, he talks about this. And we all kind of have our shtick, you know? <laughs> and, and so when I was doing, doing a chunk of study at one point, um, on the Majjhima Nikaya, on these middle-length discourses, I got about two-thirds of the way through, and I went, the Buddha had a shtick. You know, he's just, he was a teacher like the rest of us, and he had some points that he came back to over and over and over again. And this teaching is the core of what he came back to over and over. So if you carried nothing else out of here except this particular description of the way things are, it would probably be really helpful to you. So this teaching about, about how difficult things are, that things are inherently unsatisfactory and, and, um, and, and never quite right. Out of round is a description, a way that it's sometimes described, the way that a wheel keeps going bump when it has a flat point. And, and that grasping and attachment and greed cause so much of the suffering in the world and, and wanting things to be different from the way that they are. And, and that it's possible to come to a place of ease and contentment, to move past this place of unsatisfactoriness. And the path of doing it is the Eightfold Path of um, wise understanding and intention and speech and action and livelihood and effort and mindfulness and concentration. And so the Buddha is really saying when we rest the mind with these Four Noble Truths, when we really keep looking at them and wondering, okay, how does it fit with my experience here in my home or my office or my community, it really helps. It's a, it's a tool to understand what's going on and also what needs to be done about it. And the other piece of teaching of Dharma that often comes in is the teaching about karma, that everything has causes and conditions, really looking at, at what causes a situation to arise. Nothing arises without causes. So, you know, if you're going home to a difficult situation 
or as I am going to a meeting on Monday evening that's likely to be really sticky, you know, a very good question is what are the conditions for this mess? What caused it? You know, how did it arise? What are the root causes? How far back can you trace it? Sometimes that's helpful to do that, to go, go back. What, you know, and then to look for where is the place of freedom? Is there possible to come to an end of suffering? And, and seeing that um, actions reverberate for a long, long time. So you can begin to trust that um, when we do wise actions and good actions, it reverberates out and it will, it, you know, you don't always see the immediate goodness of your action, but it will reverberate just as a bell reverberates for a long time. And I was thinking as I was working on this talk of a, a good friend who died a couple of summers ago, and I had some conversations with her not too long, just a few weeks before she died. And she was really reflecting on, on the karma of, of a life that had a lot of good actions. And in fact, the last Christmas solstice winter holiday thing that she sent out was a little poster that she made that said, I have no regrets whatsoever. Imagine, you know, 87 and no regrets whatsoever. That's pretty cool. You know, I'm hoping I'll be there when I'm 87. Um, and that the ease of moving towards the ending of life that comes with the knowledge that we've done good things. I watched this also just last winter with my father as he came to his own death and seeing that there was a way in which he felt like he'd really used his life well and loved well, and, and, and he died actually relatively easily. So for us, you know, that commitment to the ending of suffering, to actions of kindness and compassion, um, that commitment to the truth of the Four Noble Truths and the teachings about karma, and so the Buddha invites us to see this, you know, to, to um, see how these teachings, these wonderful teachings of the Dharma, fit into our lives. I don't always like it that the Buddha's teachings are there. You know, sometimes I'd rather have my life my own way, and then I see, oh, look, you know, grasping causes suffering one more time. And I wish it weren't true, but it is true. And... And that's exactly what the Buddha invites us to do, is to, to look in our own lives, to investigate, to see where these teachings are true. And so then the third of these places to rest the mind is the Sangha. So as we said the first night, for the purposes of this retreat, we are the Sangha. The Sangha also, of course, is the community of all enlightened beings. That's one of its definitions. It's also defined as the community of people who, who are in the monastic community. But a lot here in the West, we also use it to describe the community of people who practice. And we need that. And if you don't have it, I invite you to think about trying to find it, to find a sitting group or, a, or to create a sitting group. Um, where 
you can gather with like-minded people who are trying to live their lives wisely and carefully and well. And maybe if it's not a Buddhist sitting group, maybe you go hang out with the Quakers or something for a while, just to have that kind of support that of people who know about silence and who know about non-harming. Wait, I was thinking about a friend of mine in Missouri um, today in another conversation and remembering that she sat um, a retreat early on in her practice and she lived at the, in those days in Missouri there weren't a whole lot of Buddhists and she went home and she started advertising in the inquiring mind and other places that she had a sitting group she was the sitting group <laughs> but she advertised that she had it she said it was two or three years before anybody called and now there is a thriving Dharma Center in Columbia Missouri so, you know, those things happen, and you could go ahead and do that if you wanted to as a way of beginning to gather sangha around you. It's really powerful to practice with other people. You know that after this retreat, how it is to come into the hall when people are sitting, and I sense it in my community at home in Santa Cruz sometimes when people gather. It's powerful, and it's not easy. Because guess what? They're not your perfect family either. You know? And your mother will be there, or your father, or your Aunt Bess, you know, whoever it is that's difficult in your life will somehow manifest as a member of the board or a member of the Sangha. And so you still have stuff to work on. But there's that amazing experience of these are people who are committed to waking up and who are committed to living their lives with the precepts. And that changes it. It changes the processes that happen. It's very amazing. So it's a bit like, again, like going to the gym. We've used that image a number of times here. Or going on an outward bound course, you know, when you create that kind of a community. And you get to try your skills out as, as you do in those places and, and to, develop them, to develop them. and and get stronger. The Buddha describes practicing the Dharma at one place. He, he talks about it as going upstream against the current. You know, So he's really saying that as we live our lives in these communities and as we live our lives in the world, it's really tough. You know, It goes against the stream of the culture and it goes against a lot of the ways that we're used to thinking and living. So that's the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And that's familiar and known. And then the next three I thought were kind of interesting. So he invites us to rest our minds, to find protection in your own virtue. Isn't that wonderful? Your own virtue. Now, if I were to say, you know, tell me something really virtuous that you've done recently. I'll bet it would be hard to get a lot of people to talk about what they've done that is really wise, maybe keeping a precept when it was difficult. But you might think about it for yourself. I'm not going to ask you to tell the story. You might just think back in your life. You know, what have you been doing that's particularly virtuous? You know, where have you kept one of the precepts? that where it was hard or where, you know, where you 
gave the change back when the person forgot they needed it or whatever. Sometimes it's really small, you know. But it's very important to tell ourselves the stories of where we behave well. And in fact, there's in the American Indian um, lineages, there's a tradition of telling the good stories. You, know, you, you could all tell me about how you'd broken precepts, and I could tell you. And we could probably have a lot of fun about how we'd done this or that, you know, how awful. And, or maybe it wouldn't be fun, but we could do it. And it's much harder to, to remember and to really acknowledge and take seriously. We somehow seem to be a little embarrassed about, about those stories. And we know, you know, if you're here, we know how to live in harmony in our lives. We know about the precepts, about not harming, about not killing, and not taking, and not engaging in sexual activity, which is harmful to yourselves or to others, and not engaging in speech, which is harmful. Honest, you know, mindful speech, wise speech is honest and beneficial and timely and kind in the sense of warm, which does not mean that sometimes it's not strong, but, and not intoxicating body or mind. You know, those are five basic precepts that we took at the beginning of the retreat and we will take again tomorrow before, because if you thought you needed them here for the retreat, <laughs> you really need them out there in the world, you know. We'll take the refuges too, actually, before you go out. And so, you know, are we committed to living this way? Are you really looking at ending wars at home as well as out there in the world? My husband, um, as many of you know, but not all of you because some of you are new, is a real aficionado of Burning Man. And he loves to go, and there's a lot of good Russell stories about Burning Man and Mary Grace stories about how I've struggled with that. And um, I'm not going to tell very many of them tonight. But he's also, um, part of what he does when he's there is work to prevent sexual harassment at Burning Man. So it's important. And he was thinking that, that his camp at Burning Man is kind of the five-precept camp, you know, which is sort of interesting because that's not the general image of Burning Man. Um, but he goes there with that intention of non-harming and, and really helping to take care of other people. And that's, that's a huge commitment. I mean, I think it's really great, and I'm very proud of him that he does that. And, um, and so can you do that? Can you have the five precept camp in your life? And, and if you do that, what the Buddha is saying is this is a place where you can actually rest and you will be protected. Your own virtue actually protects you. And we can do that not only with the precepts, but also that intention of kindness, like we, we've been talking about in the little bits of metta practice, of loving kindness practice, of extending kindness and goodwill to ourselves and to others, and, and um, really holding other beings with compassion and enjoying their happiness. All of these things that where we can um, rest safely with the other beings of our lives. I brought in with me tonight a really short poem, sort of a poem, a little prose poem that a member of my Sangha wrote, um, having really worked for a while with loving kindness and with precepts. And 
here's the poem. It's called Airborne Mindfulness. The newspaper crackles loudly in my ear from the seat behind. I feel a push against my kidneys. <laughs> I am inclined to turn and glare sternly. I do not. So really, making a decision in this woman's case to live in this place of kindness and to really see how wonderful a place it is. So here's another poem that I try to read at every retreat, a reading. So when we, when we do this, when we live in this place of kindness and keeping the precepts of our own virtue, you know, the heart gets really big. And this was written about Deepama, who was a teacher that was the teacher for many of our teachers. And she was a pretty amazing, really teeny Indian woman. She's now gone. And so this was written after her death. What is your heart like? That's what they wanted to know. They brought in someone who had just died, Deepama. They proceeded to open up her heart. You wouldn't believe what was in there. You wouldn't believe it. White people, black people, atheists, rich people, poor people, drunkards, prostitutes, priests, politicians, children, judges, baseball players, cranks, and me, even me. How did I get there? Is that what I will be like when I die? When they open up my heart, what will they find? So then, generosity is the next of these resting places. And the Buddha, in, the, in this particular text, talks about living with a heart free from stinginess, liberal and open-handed, rejoicing in giving. Isn't that wonderful? Ready to give anything asked for glad to give and to share with others. So if you look back, here's another place where you get to look back, think back to your last generous act or one that you remember. And notice that you can still taste it, right? There's a way, and this is one of the things that's traditionally true about generosity is that it, its taste lasts a long time. And so, you know, sometimes I, there's a few things that I remember in my own life that I've carried around with me for years, that once in a while they float back up for one reason or another. It's like, oh, you know, that I did that generous thing and I can still feel the happiness and and the rest that, and ease that it brings for me. So it's not only a gift to whoever you're giving, whatever it is you're giving to them, but it also turns out to be a gift for yourself. It's a most basic practice. It's the practice which is taught first in Asia, traditionally, and everyone can practice it. So unlike meditation, which gets tricky sometimes if the you're sick, or when you're very young, you're maybe not quite ready for it. But you can practice generosity. It's what children are taught. 
So in Asian villages, when the monks come around on alms round, the little children are often right there helping to put food into the monks' bowls. And we can make it part of our basic practice to do some kind or generous thing every day. And it's pretty interesting. We were talking about dana this afternoon, and, and um, you know, it's true. There's the group of people here who are directly supported by dana, but everything here at Spirit Rock is supported by dana. Everything that you look at was donated. Every board of this building, every window, every penny of the salaries that get paid to people, all of the food, is all comes out of the generosity of many, many, many people. Isn't that amazing? When you really start to think about it, it's quite astounding to see this enormous, amazing place and and thing retreat after retreat that is supported by the generosity of many, many, many hundreds of people. And so we can practice it and we can taste it. Um, and when you do it, um, the understanding is it inspires more generosity, even more. I think it's really important to say that generosity is not just generosity of resources. It's generosity of time. It's generosity of the heart. It's that place sometimes where you're willing to sit down with someone or to hold them in some way. It's the generosity that you have when you play, take time to play with your children. It's those kinds of generosity as well. So, you know, we don't always all have resources that we can give away, but we have other, or financial resources, but we have other kinds of resources. So then the kicker, the sixth item on the list, the devas. Because when I first saw this list, I thought, how am I going to talk about it? I mean, devas, I don't know about devas, you know, what do you do with this one? Because devas are heavenly beings, they're kind of a little bit like angels, I suppose you could say, and they have their own realm. It's a little higher than the human realm. And, and some people have experiences and believe that they uh, have had you know, concrete experiences of Davis. And some of you are probably rolling your eyeballs thinking, oh no, you know, where is she going now? <laughs> and, um, and so you're doubters. And um, you know, some people would say, look around. You, know, you can just see them kind of up in the rafters here. And, um, and or sometimes when we're teaching at Vajrapani, which is a Tibetan center, there's all these tankas around and statues and images, way more than there are here. But there's a few here, you know. So we have some beings who are sitting here with us. Once I asked my good friend Ajahn Amra, I said, well, you know, what do you think about prayer? And he said, oh, and he said, I think there are so many beings who would be happy to respond if we would only ask. So <laughs> there you have it. However, however, even if you're a doubter, the bottom line is the picture is very big. Recently, I have become a planetarium aficionado. And it's been going on for a while, but um, last summer I was um, at one on the Big Island, and I went in, I had my grandsons with me, and, you know, the lights got dim, and... 
the sky came up and then we were out there with star clusters and nebulae and I began to weep. I was utterly undone by these amazing images of what they, what we can see on these telescopes. And so some of you have probably seen some of the pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope. So those are the kinds of things I'm talking about. And if you want one every day, there's a wonderful site called the Astronomy Picture of the Day, where you can see a new one most days of the week. So I look at those, we look at those, you know, light coming tens of billions of years old. What? What? You know, the mind just stops. What is going on here? It's so big. It's so mysterious. My husband's a computer scientist and a physicist, so we, you know, lie in bed at night and say, well, you know, what happens to time in a black hole? (laughs) I have no idea what happens to time in a black hole. I'm told it stretches out a lot, but, you know, who knows? And so, but we do know that time is really weird, right? And we do know that there are these things called black holes where stuff goes in and it doesn't ever come out again. And we do know that some of the light we are seeing is 10 billion years old, but we're not actually sure, I'm not actually sure what that means anymore. So it just raises these questions about what's happening. The picture is very mysterious. So whether it's Davis or nebulae and black holes, I don't know that it matters so much. What this last piece tells me is that it's big. And it is mysterious. And this little four inches of gray matter doesn't get it all and can't and can't. There's a Zen koan that I've been sitting with for a couple of years now in which the Emperor Wu has encountered the great and wily Zen sage Bodhidharma. But he doesn't know that's who it is. And at one point he says to Bodhidharma after several other questions, he says, who are you standing there? And Bodhidharma says, haven't a clue. (laughs) Haven't a clue. We don't know. And this is a place where you can rest the mind. You don't need to know. We often don't need to know very much at all. In relative time and space, it's useful to have your zip code. Jack, these days, in his new book, says that we are all Buddha nature with a zip code, (laughs) in case you wanted to know. So, you know, it's useful. But there's this place, this sense in the big picture where we are so infinitesimal. Who knows what's going on? So it's very mysterious. And we can rest the mind in not knowing. And often, You've probably had some experiences here on the cushion where sometimes it's so much easier just to go, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just going to be here with whatever this experience is in my heart or my body and just not know for a little bit, not have to figure it out. Just pay attention and wait to see what happens next. And often it begins to unpack itself and after a while you have a clue about what to do next. Hmm. 
So these, there you are at the gate. And you open the gate and there's your teachers waiting for you. And when we live in the refuge of awakeness, of the truth, of our community of awakened and awakening beings, in the refuge of your virtue, in the refuge of your generosity, in the refuge of understanding that it's utterly mysterious, then we really do have a safe haven and a place from which you can carry your practice forward. So I think I'll close with just one line from Hafiz that sort of echoes the last piece. He says, burn every address for God. Burn every address for God. Just don't know. So let's sit for just a moment. I go for refuge and protection to the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. I go for refuge and protection to my own virtue, to generosity, to the devas, to the vast, mysterious bigness of all things. So thank you very much for your presence and your practice, and we have about a half an hour for walking before the last sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.